0: Before we begin, we just have a quick word about our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by the law firm Kenobi Martins, with over 275 lawyers and scientists nationwide. Kenobi Martins is consistently ranked among the top intellectual property firms. Kenobi Martins serves a diverse group of clients from multinational corporations to emerging businesses of all stages and has an international reputation for excellence. For more information about Kenobi Martins, visit www.knobbe.com. Now, on to our episode. Some of America's most beloved inventions were created by immigrants. Russian immigrant Adolf Levitt brought us the wonderful almost-human automatic donut machine in 1920 which popped out perfectly whole donuts at a rapid pace. Canadian immigrant Dr. James Naismith invented the game of basketball in Massachusetts in 1891. Alexander Graham Bell was born in Scotland and moved to the U.S. in the 1870s. He then went on to invent something called the telephone. At around the same time, Levi Strauss, a Bavarian immigrant, and Jacob Davis, who was born in Latvia, brought blue jeans to America. I just put on my Levi's and a sweatshirt and went down to that party. It's safe to say that these inventions, created by immigrant entrepreneurs, are now fully integrated and celebrated in American culture. Immigrants start companies at twice the rate of American-born citizens. And almost half of the companies in the Fortune 500 were started by immigrants or their children. In fact, later in this episode, you'll hear from an immigrant who started his own smashing success of a company. But as a nation, our attitude towards immigrants have gone through many phases. One phase in particular had serious consequences for the world of intellectual property. From the Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation, this is Stroke of Genius.
1: So for me, I think sort of the quintessential American physicist is Richard Feynman. And both of his parents were Eastern European. So the only reason why Richard Feynman became a American scientist was because the U.S. actually let his parents in.
0: This is Petra Moser. She's an economic historian and a professor of economics at the NYU Stern School of Business.
1: Now, had they tried after 1921, He would have been born somewhere else.
0: Petra is originally from Germany. She came to the U.S. in her 20s to study. But I would describe her as something of a global citizen. Petra has spent a long time studying the effects of immigration on creativity and innovation. And what she's learned is that until the late 19th century, the majority of people who arrived in the United States were from Europe, mostly Northern Europe. They largely came from places like the British Isles or... Germany.
1: After the 1880s, there was a shift. And it came about because of a number of reasons. Around this
0: time, in the midst of various economic issues, there was an increase in unrest and violence against Jews in Eastern Europe. This caused large amounts of people, many of them Jewish, to move from South and Eastern Europe to the United States.
1: So there was a big shift in the countries of origins. And the people who were already in the country reacted against this. And they saw these new people coming in as a threat to their institutions and their culture, and also actually their jobs. There
0: was mounting pressure to change the United States immigration policy from being that of a free and open one to one that restricted immigration from many parts of the world.
1: A lot of the media at the time had cartoons that connected the immigrants with diseases, with typhoid and with Bolshevism. So they connected them with things that they thought Americans would be afraid of.
0: This cartoonish propaganda soon turned into policy, policy that President Calvin Coolidge supported.
1: So Calvin Coolidge, for example, advertised his policy in a journal called Good Housekeeping in 1921. country needs every ounce of its energy to restore itself. The costs of government are all assessed upon the people. This means that the farmer is doomed to provide a certain amount of money. And they would actually say things like, we want immigration, but we want the right kind of immigration. In
0: 1921 and in 1924, the National Origins Quota System placed restrictions on immigration. Restrictions that still welcomed Northern Europeans, but now barred Southern and Eastern European immigrants. The immigration policy was actually called our Nordic Immigration Policy.
1: What we wanted to see is how that affected science. To study this, Petra did something novel.
0: Instead of collecting patent data, she started collecting biographies. Petra spent at least five years collecting biographies of scientists, and she ended up with the life stories of about 90,000 of them. She can pull single stories that illustrate the effect of the 1920s immigration quotas.
1: I, I think a nice illustration of the general point is the story of Paul Erdős. Erdős was a Hungarian scientist who really liked to travel and loved to co-author with people everywhere. A lot of his work helped uh, lay the foundations very important to computer science, and the people he worked with probably learned from him. I mean, he was full of ideas, and he was very inspiring.
0: Sometime in the 1950s, mathematician and scientist Paul Erdos was refused a visa to the United States.
1: Erdos was very, he's a very, very smart guy, and in this particular case, all that inspiration and all that knowledge moved from the United States and it just stayed in Europe.
0: Petra has countless stories like this one. And when she looks at them as a whole, there's an obvious trend. And that trend is that during this time period, scientists from all fields were turned away from the United States.
1: What we see is that they actually kept out lots of scientists. So roughly in the order of like around 30 to 40 people per year. So you keep out 30 to 40 scientists per year, that's like, it's like a physics department. Just get rid of them, you just don't have those. And so what what we see is that the restrictions caused a decline in American inventiveness. In the case of
0: Paul Erdos, he simply took his brilliance elsewhere and invention still flourished. But this is one of the happier stories Petra found.
1: I think the quotas became incredibly costly in terms of loss to human life and also to science when the Nazis took power in Germany and then also in a large part of Eastern Europe. What that meant was that now there were lots of people who wanted to flee, but you could only come to the United States if you were born in Germany would not say if you were born in Poland or Hungary. Many of them just perished because it was so hard to find somewhere to go.
0: The quotas stayed in place until the 1960s.
1: What is really important to keep in mind is that these quotas were in force for such a long time. It was like basically more than 40 years.
0: Over the 40-year period when the quotas were in place, fewer patents were filed by American scientists who used to collaborate with scientists from Eastern Europe. The overall effect of our Nordic immigration policy was a serious reduction of innovation in the United States. In 1965, the United States policies on immigration changed.
1: At which point they were abolished in the 1965 Immigration Act by Johnson, by President Johnson. And then he, at the time, signed it on Ellis Island, and he said, like, this was these quotas were an evil. because it's the twin barriers of, of prejudice and privilege. That uh, that his hopes never Today, will, will will dishonor the, my the, the United States again.
2: This system is abolished. We can now believe that it will never again shatter the gate to the American nation with the twin barriers of prejudice and privilege. Our beautiful America was built by a nation of strangers. From a hundred different places or more, they have poured forth into an empty land, joining and blending in one mighty
0: and irresistible tide. The land flourished,
1: I can tell you from my own experience, it's not incredibly pleasant to leave your family behind and go to a new country when you're in your early 20s. It's not something that you do to have a cushy life. It's something that you do because you want to learn or because you really want to achieve something that's kind of big enough so that you're willing to incur those costs.
2: When you come here, you're starting at zero. And I think to go from zero to something, you end up exerting a lot of energy. You create a lot of potential energy in physics world. And, and that's progress. And I think that's, by the way, not only leads to progress of the individual, but of our country. And I think that's why our country has been so successful. It's been the waves of immigrants that try to go from zero to something. And it's, there's a lot of productivity there.
0: This is entrepreneur and inventor Joe Kiani. He spent his life in pursuit of database solutions in healthcare mainly in monitoring patients via pulse oximetry.
2: I started my company Mastemo which I'm still the chairman and CEO of, we're now a publicly traded company.
0: Joe Kiani was born in Shiraz, Iran, where his mom was a nurse and his dad was a technician. But his dad really wanted to be an engineer.
2: But he didn't have the opportunity to become an engineer in Iran because Iran in Universities, there weren't that many. And it was for the brightest and the best people. Not everybody got to go. So my dad's way of becoming an engineer was to leave Iran, come to the U.S. and study engineering. And with $10,000, we came here to be here for a few years while my dad got his engineering degree. I remember leaving Iran thinking that the government of Iran was not representing its people, was it, it was corrupt.
0: Joe was nine years old when his family moved to Albertville, Alabama. He spoke maybe three words of English,
2: I think it was yes no and I don't know. <laughs> Alabama was just lush and green and uh, woods everywhere and creeks and it was just beautiful and and the town was so welcoming they helped us learn English after class
0: even though he liked it in the u.s nine-year-old Joe always thought he'd be going back to Iran
2: It was a pretty tough life we kind of we middle-class in Iran, but we came here, lived really, really low, <laughs> low resources. We lived in the, in the projects for a while, and I didn't think we moved to migrate here. I thought we were moving here temporarily, and but it wasn't until the revolution in Iran that we realized we're not going to be able to go back to Iran. By
0: 1979, many Iranians felt, as Joe did, that the government was not representing its people. Then, the Shah was overthrown and replaced by an Islamic Republic.
2: And I was so happy to see that happen. And then soon, Iran got a lot worse. It went from a place where it repressed freedom of dissent, freedom to dissent against their government, freedom of questioning the government, to even limiting people's personal choices of how to live. You know, everybody had to live by their religious rules. The government of Iran. And that's what I learned sometimes is unintended consequences of big changes.
0: This is when Joe and his family realized their move to the U.S. wasn't temporary. They were Iranian-Americans now. It's also around this time that Joe first started thinking about this concept he now calls microfixing.
2: So I I started thinking, well, maybe what we need is small changes, And and if enough of us did small changes, Maybe one day we'd wake up and there'll be far less suffering, far less injustice. So that's the whole idea of micro-fixing, to not to try to topple governments, <laughs> but to try to fix the things that you're capable of fixing around you, making everything a little bit better, and hopefully, macro-level, everything gets better.
0: Despite not speaking more than three words of English when he arrived in the United States, Joe graduated from high school at the age of 15. By the time he was 22, he'd earned both his bachelor's and master's degrees in electrical engineering. And then, Joe encountered what would become his first microfix, the pulse oximeter.
2: I uh, saw a pulse oximeter for the first time, maybe two years before I started my company. And I was just blown away how you could shine light through the finger And by the light that you could detect from the other side, you could figure out how much oxygen was being carried in your arteries. I think we've all played that game as kids where we stuck a flashlight to our finger and saw it glow, never thought you could uh, use it to actually measure things. So that really seemed incredible to me. And the fact that oxygen at the periphery can tell you so much about your health. If your lungs are working, if your heart's working or not.
0: But at that time, pulse oximeters were unreliable and inaccurate.
2: False alarms when the patient moves or when they have really low blood flow was just inherent limitations of physics of pulse oximetry. And they justified it in many ways and they moved on. And I just thought, no, that can't be. I wanted to go solve this problem of pulse oximetrists failing during motion artifact and low perfusion.
0: But even after all of his achievements, Joe was still a nobody.
2: And I needed money. No one would invest in me. So I uh, took out a loan on my condo of about $40,000. I had a little alcove by my living room and dining room. And that was Massimo. And then started using a little bit of my garage that was attached to my condo. So yeah, it's a classic garage startup. Bought some equipment like oscilloscopes and breadboards and and software and began my uh, journey to hopefully solve this problem. It's not an overnight success. (laughs) So I'll warn you.
0: Joe toiled and tinkered and employed everything he'd learned from his college professors. And finally he had something, something new, something he called signal extraction technology. Basically, he figured out a way to block out all the noise that was causing false alarms and inaccurate readings and just focus in on the signal that matters, the one from a patient's heart. Once Joe figured this out, he was definitely on his way. But it wasn't until he had applications for patents on this technology that he was able to get an investment.
2: It started off, if there was a beginning, it started off with our patents for solving the problem of false alarms with pulse oximeter. I think we used those patents to raise money. Thanks to a strong IP laws at the time, people were thinking, okay, well, even though Joe is nobody, no one knows who he is and they don't know anything, <laughs> maybe these patents will help them establish themselves and give them a chance to learn and grow.
0: This is when things really started to take off for Joe.
2: I think having strong patent rights was essential to Massimo's ability to raise money and continue.
0: Massimo has gone on to address other microfixes in so many areas of healthcare that it's impossible to talk about them all. Let's just say Massimo has more than a few patents now.
2: Oh my God, I think Massimo has nearly a 1,000 patents now, maybe over 800, somewhere between 800 to 1,000, and probably 200 of them I am a named inventor on.
0: Massimo now employs more than 5,000 people around the world. Joe's innovation reduced false alarms in pulse oximetry by 95%. Before COVID-19 hit, Massimo was monitoring this important vital sign of over 200 million people. And now... This monitoring is even more critical for combating COVID-19.
2: We saw the news that was gripping us all about the fast spread of COVID and, and the scary thoughts of how people couldn't breathe and their lungs were just getting damaged with ventilation that wasn't helping them.
0: Massimo already had something in the works. It just needed a little adjustment.
2: We had a Eureka. We said, hey, you know, we've been working on this technology for monitoring patients that are taking opioids at home. It was a wearable and wearable pulse oximeter, the only one of this kind that I'm aware of, not only because of the number of days you can wear it, but because of the performance it gives. And we saw how hospitals were overwhelmed and we thought maybe we could offer that solution So for patients that didn't require immediate attention, they could be monitored at home.
0: With associates working day and night to get this product out and approved by the FDA, Massimo created a device that would allow COVID-19 patients to monitor their vitals at home.
2: We launched it and it has really helped create a pressure relief for hospitals that were dealing with a myriad of patients just filling up their halls. And I'm very proud of our team, that our team, I mean, literally would work till the morning, go home, take a shower, come back. Within a month, they created something that should have taken months, if not years. And it's been a huge success.
0: This sort of success can all be attributed to something nine-year-old Joe would call a microfix. The world, especially right now, is full of problems and injustices. But you just focus on one thing you can fix. Just one thing you can change that will make an incremental difference. Joe says, looking at the world this way actually changes a lot.
2: Oh, I think it becomes a beautiful world because the world is no longer too challenging. You don't have to solve problems that are out of your reach. You can solve the problems that are within your grasp. So I think there's an empowerment you get. There's a sense of satisfaction you get. And and I believe it's a it's really a contagious <laughs> behavior. Uh, many people around you start saying, hey that works, let me try it. Then you give life to more people doing things. And and you know less unintended consequences by microfixing rather than doing something big that you don't know what's going to happen next.
0: But Joe thinks that his idea of micro-fixing works best in an environment that values ideas from everyone, no matter where they come from.
2: You know, they, they called us the American dream. I truly believe what we dream is the universal dream. But in most countries, you can't live it. Uh, in most countries, it doesn't matter how hard you work or how smart you are. It matters who your family is, who you're connected to, I don't think I would have been able to do what I've done anywhere else in the world but here. And that's why I so much believe in never lifting up that ladder if we want to have our country continue thriving as a nation.
0: World IP Day is celebrated every year on April 26th. This year, Join IPO Education Foundation for a webinar featuring three different approaches to bringing ideas to market. An inventor who licenses their invention, a company who seeks to license ideas, and an inventor who builds a business around their idea. Sign up for this free webinar on ipoef.org forward slash behind the idea. This episode is sponsored by the law firm Kenobi Martins. With over 275 lawyers and scientists nationwide, Kenobi Martins is consistently ranked among the top intellectual property firms. Kenobi Martins serves a diverse group of clients from multinational corporations to emerging businesses of all stages and has an international reputation for excellence. For more information about Kenobi Martins, visit www.knobbe.com.